Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is a mecca for plant lovers. That's right, listeners, spring is in the air. We're heading to California to meet the founder of a flower business that started in a San Francisco garage and has bloomed into a multi-state brand. It's hard to set up a business. It takes a lot from you. Being able to have a bigger goal of the people that you're serving, that's something that for us will always be a non-negotiable. Then we'll catch up with a friend of the programme who's growing his plant care line and expanding the product range. A staple like a watering can for us was something that should be a cherished item and that when you pick it up and use it, often regularly, you know, watering plants once a week, it's something that is a joy to hold and a joy to look at. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Emily Boschetto is the founder and CEO of Matilda's Bloombox, a San Francisco-based floral delivery service that sources blooms from local farmers across California. The idea originally sprouted from another type of delivery service, farm-to-table produce boxes. Emily and her husband Matt decided to apply a similar model to flowers, connecting with local farmers and supporting the floral industry by carving out their own space. I caught up with Emily to hear about the brand's impressive expansion, their purpose-oriented approach, and the importance of serving the Bay Area community. Emily began by telling me about the early days of Matilda's Bloombox. We started the business in, what, 2016? And if we go really back to the beginning, like, we started out of the garage of our house, which is insane, like, thinking about that now, but... The original concept came from the fact that we both saw this huge movement in produce boxes for food, like farm-to-table, fruit and vegetable boxes being delivered to people's homes. And Matt's family actually, in the 60s and 70s, they had rose farms in San Leandro, which is actually on the East Bay of the Bay Area. And so they are still very connected within the flower industry, friends of a lot of farmers and growers in the Bay Area. And we just really identified this space. Nobody is really servicing that community. So really it was like, okay, could we do the vegetable box idea with flowers instead? And that was kind of where the concept came from. And then I'm good for having a glass of wine and then saying it's a good idea. And then the next morning being like, I don't know if it's such a good idea. I mean, should we really do it? But Matt is the one who was like, no, we said we were going to do it. We're going to do it. Let's go. Come on, let's go. Let's do it. What have we got to lose? So that's the, the backstory in terms of the inspiration. I was always involved in flowers before. So it just felt like a good fit. And it's one of those things I think when you kind of have that thought and then it never goes away. And it's like hard to ignore it after a period of time. Like you kind of have to listen to yourself or the universe and just go with it and just take that risk. We have one life, so let's just give it a go. So that was kind of why we took the jump. And then we started the business out of our garage because San Francisco is an insanely expensive place to start a business. It's an insanely expensive place to live. So... It was like, how could we do this in the cheapest way possible with as little overhead as possible? So we were just like, okay, let's just start building the boxes ourselves in our house. And here we are talking about it. Now, interestingly, though, I guess one of the enemies of that 
keeping costs low model is to be a bit more intentional in terms of how you're sourcing the businesses, the partners with whom you have to work to deliver these flowers to your customers. And yet again, it seems that from the outset, it was very important to you guys to support other local businesses, local growers, these people who were facing their own problems from their own increasing cost base and the challenges of climate and all the rest of it, even though you wanted to try and keep things efficient and keep things cost effective, was that always a non-negotiable that those elements had to be sacrosanct and respected? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to like, we're very purpose-orientated people and it's hard to set up a business. It takes a lot from you. So, you know, being able to have a bigger goal of the people that you're serving, which is just so valuable. I mean, that's something that for us will always be a non-negotiable. And the epicenter for the flower industry in the US is California. So what comes with that is the availability of flowers right here is huge. So in spring and summer, Actually, price isn't a problem and volume is a problem because a lot of these farmers have just got so much to sell. Their challenge was we're growing too much, basically, and we, we can't move it quick enough. And so that was really kind of our intention is like if we can build a community of, of people that really love flowers and, and actually want to support and invest in our local farmers and their local communities, then we can drive that volume on behalf of our farmers. And I think the flower industry here is, is one of these things where it's, it's actually not really modernized that much. It's still a little bit archaic in terms of how it's run and managed. And so like you don't really have like an online platform that represents what the farmers have to sell. So we were like, how could we be that for them? Knowing that they themselves are not really very technically competent And why should they be? So for us, it was like, can we create like an interface that would enable us to support different farmers each week? So every week we'll change the arrangement in the box. And the cool thing about that is it means we just get to work with as many farmers as possible. And often now it's at the point where I'll get a call and it's like, hey, I've got so many Snapdragons or I've got so many Dahlias. They're really moving quickly right now. And the weather here has a huge impact too on what's going to come and go. And it can come in and come out of season in a second. So we have that flexibility to be like, okay, cool. Let's just include it in the box and then we can buy it all from you guys. And that is meaningful to me and Matt. That is honestly the reason why we do what we do. So I don't think there'll ever be a point where we move away from that. Well, yeah, I want to ask you a bit about how you did have to change your perspectives, I guess, by geography. As you mentioned, California is kind of the, the epicenter, if you like, of that of that business. But I guess because of the changing demands of seasonality and what consumers want to keep things fresh, you have to look further afield, I know, to Texas and other markets that you're serving. But is that the same also with your growers? Because there are things like, you know, in the summer, if you need more of a particular varietal, you have to cast your own geographical net a bit wider. Yeah, you're right. Like the bigger you get, the more complicated it is in terms of like sourcing because you can only buy what's available. It's not like you can be like, oh, let's just have an infinite amount of one thing. You can't. Nature doesn't work like that. So the cool thing is we're at the point now where we've been able to work with farmers and feed it the other way around. So it's okay, we know that Italian ranunculus are a huge hit right now. Everybody loves them. 
But we were kind of working with our farmers two years ago on that. So if they can build the planting programs and get in the bulbs and start cultivating a program around Italian ranunculus, we know that as many as they can grow, we can buy. And then what we've been able to do is do that with multiple farmers. So you're able to then buy what each of everybody has at the same time to meet the number. But it's still a challenge because sometimes it can just rain or it can be super cold and all of a sudden everything that you'd planned to use is just no longer available. And that's just reality. So I think one of the cool things about our customer base is they recognize that and their understanding. So I hate to substitute stuff, but if we have to, then we do. And we always write a little note in the box and explain to people the rationale why. And then everybody is like, no, I totally get it. This is why we love to support your business because nature is nature. And that comes with some element of volatility. So and I suppose the volatility and then the serendipity that someone may find something they weren't expecting, which they grow to love more. Nature provides both the, the challenge and the opportunity, I guess, in that way. And just to that point, is the the unpredictability is that the biggest challenge because you are reliant on nature natural products and that you, you can never really know is that the biggest challenge that you would characterize from the what seven or so years that, that you've been doing this now I think at different stages of growth, like you have new issues. So like at the beginning, we were so small. I mean, we had at the beginning, like three customers. The problem then was, oh my, are we going to survive? Is this even going to be financially viable? And then now we've grown so, so much over the past six, seven years that we're in a position where sourcing is now a challenge. The environment is a challenge. If it's fire season and that affects our farmers, then that's a problem. And I think the environmental impact is huge. We're seeing so much shift in seasonality and it's becoming very hard to predict. And that is affecting our farmers so much because... They might have been growing, like Louis has been growing dahlias for over 55 years. But this year, he had his shortest dahlia season because it was actually too cold at the beginning of the year. And then it wasn't warm for long enough. So all of a sudden, he just has half the volume of what he would ordinarily have. But he has the same overhead costs. So that is a challenge, too, because it means that you've all of a sudden got less volume of a certain thing that you were expecting. And then it's cost more for them to grow these flowers. So as a result, there's an increase in price. And so how do you manage that increase with the metrics of the business when the idea is that it's as volume heavy as possible? And we want to keep our flowers as affordable as possible to keep the volume high and also just to make it as accessible as we can. So that's a new challenge. I think if I go back right to the beginning of when we started, I think the biggest thing that we kept circling around, Matt and I, was what type of business is it that we really want to have? The Bay Area at the time had a lot of money available. So it was like, did we want to go down a venture capitalist funded route or did we want to just build the business ourselves? And that was a conversation that kept opening up all the time. And in the end, and I think now we're looking back on it, we're so happy that we did this. We decided that we just wanted to keep full ownership. We wanted to keep full control And if that meant a longer trajectory for us to get the business where it needed it to be, then that was fine with us. And I think we were lucky along the way that we were able to cultivate such a great community that it moved a lot quicker than we expected. 
And we're in a situation where we can we can really make a difference to the farms that we buy from, which, you know, is really cool, to be honest. So Definitely. And I like the idea that you can't help but use some floral and flower growing metaphors like cultivating communities. It just it lends itself it lends itself so so elegantly. Just just to, uh, quickly, one aside I wanted to ask you about, and actually I've I've asked a lot of family businesses on this program this question, which is they say, you know, never work with children or animals or whatever. Lots of people say, Oh, never launch business with your spouse, you must be crazy. And if we look over the years of the business's development, you've also got a, a young family. I mean, it's so difficult as the best of times to navigate those yeah. challenges. Is it one of these stories, though, where Matilda's Blue Mox only does work because it's a family business or are there some, some pitfalls? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, Matilda is our daughter, so she was really the inspiration for us starting the business in the first place. And since then, we've had two more children. So obviously that's like a little bit more complicated. But I, I think there's a couple of ways I'd answer that question. First of all, our goal was that we'd build something that our kids would obviously like be involved in, but also it'd be nice to leave something behind in the end that <laughs> is meaningful. Not only have you made an impact on the people that you're buying from, but also just would be nice to just have something that they can maybe take on in life too. So that was the bigger thing behind it. And obviously the inspiration came from us having a child and being like these big meaty questions on life. Like, what are we doing right now? Are we really happy in our jobs? You only have one shot at life. So why don't we just take the risk and do something that we really believe in? And why wouldn't we do that? So Matilda kind of changed the game for us in that sense. And then in terms of Matt and I, it is obviously challenging working with your husband sometimes, but we have a great relationship and now the business is big enough that we have our own spaces. I think before it was harder because the business wasn't big enough for us to carve out our own space in it. So you're kind of like questioning people's decisions and and that's difficult. But now it's like we don't even necessarily see each other all the time. We're not working with each other on every single decision. So it's just... It's kind of cool. And we have the flexibility of being able to be home with our kids when we want to be and to be at work when we need to be too. And I think that I believe in like a fluid life. I don't want to live an existence where I work all day and then I put my kids to bed and then that's it. And then I just see them on the weekend. I want to be involved in my kids' school. Like I want to be involved in their activities. Both of us do. And I just think... We have that freedom and flexibility to do that. And I think that is one of the greatest gifts of the business that we've built, to be honest. So, Yeah, wise words indeed. Just finally, what are you most excited about? If you look ahead, I don't know if there's specific plans that you can maybe share share with us and share with our, with our listeners, but what, what are you most excited about? Or is it just seeing where this, this kind of journey takes you next? I think there's a lot of excitement with how we can move the business forward. And I keep coming back to this space of it being more of a lifestyle orientated brand. So this year we've pivoted where we we still have flowers, which is like the core of our business. But moving past that, we have napkins and linens and like taking the, the brand into the garden and like looking at potted plants. Our farmers have so many bulbs and they know how to grow really cool things. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity to build a program around that and start 
educating people on how to grow dahlias and how to take care of peonies and to actually be able to cultivate something for themselves in their own garden. So yeah, I think there's a huge amount of space. We have such a loyal community, which I'm really thankful for, and it's growing. And so I just think that how we look to take flowers within the home at a much bigger level, I think is something really cool to explore. But just having fun too, just enjoying life and just having a laugh and just being relaxed and cool and just enjoying the ride, I think is part of it. I just think it's so important to think about the present as well as the future. That was Emily Boschetto, the co-founder of Matilda's Bloombox. And you can learn more about the business by heading to matildasbloombox.com. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Now, regular listeners of the programme will no doubt remember good friend of the show, Jack Lewis. Jack's the founder and CEO of So Vital, a forward-thinking brand delivering high-quality care for your houseplants, I'm delighted to say. We welcome Jack back to Midori House today. Jack, uh, great to have you with us again. Now, exciting developments since we last spoke. Additional products added to the range. Just remind us, was that always the plan? All of it was envisioned from the start but it was like to the world you're revealing a flower that's blooming and there's layers to it and we know exactly what it will look like in the next five years with the product drops and and launches but it's the it's the exciting thing of it each increment there's like a new layer that you get to to show the world and introduce to people and what we've now focused on is the tools and accessories that help you take care of your plants beyond just the nutritional side so obviously initially it was really anchored around plant nourishment and how your plants need a balanced macro micro nutrient feed to keep them super healthy now we brought to life the tools and accessories like watering cans and mist i have a watering can here oh it's lovely the, the metal <laughs> yes the stainless steel designed to last a generation the whole a lot of the inspiration behind the watering can was as a kid i admired some watering cans that i found in my granddad's shed and they were super super old and but had weathered weathered these really well and still worked perfectly. And they also had a certain flair to them, and especially being in metal, there was the the juxtaposition of sort of the delicacy of, of the shape, but then also the robustness of the material. Mm. And so when we set about designing this watering can, we wanted something that would effectively age over 50 years and be the sort of thing that your grandkid would then pick up and go, oh, I can now water something with this. And it's not disposable, but it's cherished. And I think just like we cherish ornaments in our houses that we pick up and you cherish that favourite cooking pot that you got bought or was given as a wedding present or something that's still there and you still do a casserole in it, a staple like a watering can for us was something that should be that cherished item and that when you pick it up and use it, often regularly, you know, watering plants once a week, it's something that is a joy to hold and a joy to look at. I love that idea. People saying, I remember when I was round at Grandpa Jack's and this was the watering can that he used. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely story. And that's true sustainability, of course, isn't it? It's not about ticking some boxes in the, the short longevity. term. It's about making things that, that really last. What intrigues me, and I, I think listeners will recall from our previous conversations, Jack, that you have an incredibly clear, or it seems to me, vision for even quite long-term future. But I actually wanted to ask you sort of on the flip side of that. Since we last spoke, how much 
have you had to pivot and adapt and move maybe in different directions because of challenges that have cropped up or opportunities that have presented themselves since our last conversation? Because you are very far-sighted, but you're also adaptable, as most canny entrepreneurs are. Tell me a little bit about that, both challenge and opportunity and how much you either have to pivot or actually have to stay true and, and not move too far from your course. What's that process been like? Totally. Well, I'd, I'd draw a distinction between, I think we have a very clear vision about the brand and the products in the brand world. But then in terms of how that manifests itself to the world in the form of our sales channels, for example, is something that we're, we're very keen to always be evaluating and, and ensuring that we're offering our customers the best experience possible and something that we definitely evaluated a lot over the last few months is the online versus in-store experience of buying. So we've had a fantastic opportunity since spring of this year to be at Le Bon Marché in Paris. And we did a fantastic spring campaign with them where we uh, celebrated the launch of a collection of seed packets. And we got to really anchor ourselves in that left bank Parisian community and a a great department of Le Bon Marché, which has so much rich history and we found that being able to be interacting with customers in real life where they can pick up your products, ask questions and often discuss problems they have with their plants. For example, we're you know, confused about why this plant's doing really well and this other one that we've got in exactly the same position is, is not doing so well and what products have you got in the pharmacy cabinet that can help this? We found that you can't have that interaction online and especially with products like ours which are very hands-on and often come with questions People still love to ask a human those questions. And a little bit like with healthcare, you know, we still have the the powerhouse pharmacies and health food shops. And yes, of course, organisations like Amazon have really pushed into that space online. But you still see the, the anchoring of the market on the in-store interactions, asking someone, picking something up on a shelf, being able to evaluate something in person, because it's that it's, you can build so much more trust in that way. And it's really forced us to go... How far can we really deliver that best-in-class service online for that customer versus offline and actually building out that physical retail presence where you can have your products displayed in a way that's helping someone intuitively navigate a collection and also feel and pick up something and go, oh, I I didn't realise the watering can's metal. We found some people when we were talking about what they thought of the, the watering can, they'd only seen photos of it online, they assumed it was plastic, which is, you know, part of the reason we wanted to push against the plastic culture and but when someone then picks up and saw they go oh wow it's metal that's lovely and ding ding just like you did (laughs) yes i couldn't help but do it i might do it again and that's something you can't do online and so something that we're then it's almost you could say if, if the analogy is a brand growing and the product collection emerging is like a flower blooming and the different layers of the petals coming out it's going almost the best light in which that flower is presented and actually sometimes you need to shift the angle of that slightly because as something starts to emerge and and it takes form you go well actually it's not being given its best chance to shine x way and actually y way is a better way and so from our perspective we're very very delighted to be looking at 2024 with some some wonderful other partnerships in locations where customers have plants and are shopping and stocking up on their Aesop hand soap and then going and finding a really interesting new book to to add to their collection and then also realise, oh yes, my plants, I mustn't forget those. Let's now delve into the goodies of So Vital and look at their trowels and their watering cans and their misters and then discover the, the healing powers of the elixir for their fiddly fig. 
It's great stuff. And I love that analogy, the idea of the plant that needs to be shown in the best light and it needs all those right combination of nourishment and positioning and all this kind of thing. But I think that pivot is really interesting. Obviously, we're hugely committed to the enduring importance, the power actually of of brick and mortar retail. It sounds like you're not a man, I think, that gets surprised often because you think of a lot of the ways that things can go. But it does sound like you've been positively surprised about that, that power. Would you say that you have learned... Jack, from some of these exponents, maybe it's Le Bon Marché or others. And as you walk around, I'm interested in just what you see when you just go into other shops, not necessarily in the area in which you're working, but about the nature of that of that engagement, that interaction, and this suggestion that perhaps, I don't know, the future could be offline, maybe even exclusively down the track. Has that surprised you, how, how powerful that experience, that shopping experience can be? Definitely. And I suppose we, we were creating the brand during covid originally or the initial inception and so and we have just as a a society in in the uk gone through great disruption to the in-person shopping experience and people are rediscovering that after the awful period under under covid and so what hasn't surprised me is when i take a step back and look and go look established retail has been how people have purchased the last 80 years and while things do change overnight generally they always tend back to the trend curve as we're seeing for example with the with the growth of e-commerce and and the general trend if you track it over a 30 year period accounting for for what happened during the pandemic but i have been surprised by certain assumptions people make about things online it is hard to communicate in a fast paced world such as the materials of a product mm, and mm. what something feels like and and the default almost biases people have to things they see online and something else that as we've grown and started doing activities in different countries that has really emerged and become clear is for example we did a pop-up in Korea about a month ago as you start to build that global community platforms like say your website or your Instagram they have to start then adapting to reflect the fact that maybe some of your products are only available in a certain country and if you're trying to cultivate a global community around a brand it's sort of oh this is for you but this isn't for you and oh we're giving you a bit of attention you not a bit of attention and it's trying to navigate and build that out and actually when you look to certain brands that or institutional houses like say the Heinz as the world they have their distribution channels and San Pellegrino has a distribution channels and you don't go to like sanpellegrino.com and stock up you you buy it through distribution channel but it means they can then keep their social media and their website more like a portfolio of the brand and it's servicing almost equally a global community because I think what's interesting is and and this was again something that was was prompted by by expansion to different markets was looking at how other brands like say Kiehl's had done separate Instagrams for different countries and was effectively running parallels and looking at those it felt there was an element of disjointed disjointedness and there's also the propensity then to get drift and brand drift because you get maybe different agendas creeping into different markets that are then manifested through those platforms which dilutes that global harmonious image and so I think what's very interesting is when when you get the opportunity to do in-person store activations and product placement you can make that more personalized to a market but then you can keep the digital nature of a brand, which is obviously a relatively new invention, the digital nature of a brand. You know, it's really since the 90s that we've we've had this revolution in how a, how a brand and and products are consumed via, via the online experience. And um, we can keep that a lot more uh, neutral and 
centralised, but then you can allow certain parts of the brand to really flourish um, and flex in real life and utilise those on-the-ground partners. Jack, just finally, it's interesting. I think I might have asked you this before, but given, as you said, expansion into these different markets as the business grows, one of the things I always find interesting to ask founders is, how do you navigate that more fragmentary nature of doing business day-to-day in other markets with more products? And it's very important to you, plainly, that you retain that control over the brand, its direction, its messaging, and so on. But by the nature of the success that Servital is enjoying, the business is bigger and it must be harder. You have to trust more different stakeholders and so on and so forth. How tricky is that to navigate as a manager, as a founder, but as someone who then wants to empower good people to make their own decisions? Have you found, since even since we last spoke, that, again, maybe that's pivoted in directions that perhaps you didn't expect at the outset? The short answer to that is good standard operating procedures. And I have an amazing senior team around me that is very aligned with me on what the vision is and then what those operating procedures look like. And we have a very good approvals process when it comes to design of new products and the final execution of them from a from a visual perspective, from a merchandising perspective, because absolutely the you've got this double-edged sword of the, the bottleneck. So if you want to have consistency, you end up with the bottleneck because you have to get everything funneled up and approved. But then the flip side is if you don't get that yet, you get sprawl and you get collections by brands that you won't even associate with the brand. And you go, I didn't realise that was from that brand or that doesn't make sense or that doesn't really fit in, which is the antithesis of good brand building. And so practically, if you were to divide the business into two areas and you've got the brand marketing communications, then you've got the operational side practically ensuring that you're servicing and staying consistent with products in stock, products in arriving to retailers in the format that they're meant to. You have strong ERP and we really invest in that with setting up on NetSuite and ensuring that we know with laser point accuracy exactly where something is at what time because we invested in setting up systems that are rigid but quite foolproof and basically work against things falling between the cracks because we don't use like localized spreadsheets. Everything's like cloud-based ERP. So there's no sort of, oh, I didn't realize I hadn't uploaded this. And that meant that actually we discovered stock was sitting there. It's, it's like, no, it's centralized, central source of truth. When it comes to the brand, the visual side, very, very lucky working with Leslie David's studio in Paris, still after, after many years on crafting that graphic identity and then that artistic direction when it comes to how we photograph products and use visual communication and I've got a great team around me internally at So Vital who ensure that we basically plan ahead so everything is mapped out 12 months in advance obviously you have to flex when it comes to opportunities that arise or collaborations that are unexpected you go really want to do this and communicate on this but it's sometimes removing and rejecting the excitement that is in the inevitable temptation with brand building I think I think I talked about on the last podcast this idea of like pick a lane and stick to it and focus. And actually, often I find that the most productive months are the most boring months in the sense (laughs) that there's so much excitement. And generally people that I think create businesses and are attracted to, to businesses that are fast growing, they like novelty. They like things that are spontaneous. They like uncertainty. It's exciting. They like the ability to be able to turn direction quickly. But to a point... Almost every business's goal is ultimately to to get to a point of, of solidity and rigidity and permanence and codifying itself to enable itself to scale and duplicate. And early on, you know, there's by just 
spending so 10% of the time being super creative, then 90% executing that. That's what keeps something consistent. And often just saying no to something. Yes, that could be really cool. Yes, that sounds exciting, but we're not going to do that. Or that's great, but let's kick that into next year when we're allowing ourselves the 10% of super inspired creativity. Now it's about we've got the creativity, we've got the creative assets, we've got the ideas and the stories. It's just executing them out. It's writing stuff, uploading stuff, emailing stuff. And I think I use this term like foul pro, like false productivity. And I think you get a lot of people that in the world have amazing ideas, ideas people. And ideas are super, super important. And the world is built on ideas, but the world is also built on execution of those ideas. And an idea is just an idea until it gets put into motion and happens. And I think being super controlled and constrained with a few ideas, but then executed really well. And actually recognising that, yes, the creation of those ideas is really exciting and it's productive up to an extent, but spending like two or three weeks coming up with more ideas and more brainstorms and more we could do this and more roundtables and more like wallowing almost in the endless possibilities of, of things has not got you anywhere. And often you can get to a vision or something pretty quickly and then just all about the execution of it, which often is quite boring and laborious and following up and making rigid timelines, holding yourself to account, getting something over the line by a certain time. It's inherently less creative, but it's what is ultimately productive and is what building a business is. And I think that's a big distinction that we have to draw. And if you want to do things that feel really, really creative and inspiring, that's like a personal hobby, you know, go and get lost in creating paintings or get lost in personal gardening. But for a business, you've got accountability, you've got stakeholders, you've got a system to build and get over the line. And so, yeah, back to your question of how do we keep things consistent? I think we we take it very seriously, the business, and we we really focus on codifying, standardising and doing the grisly stuff that's not the most inspiring, exciting, but it's ultimately what builds a business. That was Jack Lewis, the founder and CEO of So Vital, and you can learn more about the brand. It's one of our favourites on the show. Head on over to sovital.com. And that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka coming your way this Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard and editing assistance from Steph Chungu. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to the magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can always follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform too. Reach out to the Entrepreneurs team by emailing Laura on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening.